You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 Lectures, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blacksland de Lange. This is Lecture 12, given in Berlin on the 6th of March, 1913, entitled Errors of Spiritual Research. Just as it is of great importance in every area of human endeavor, to recognize not only the paths of truth, but also the sources of error. This is especially the case in the realm that is the subject of these lectures, that of spiritual research or spiritual science. In this realm, one has to do not only with sources of error that can, as it were, be eliminated through judgment and careful consideration, but with sources of error that arise at every stage in the course of a spiritual investigation of truth. These are errors that must not merely be refuted on the quest for truth, but fully overcome. And it is only by knowing them, by being able to gain a spiritual understanding of these experiences in their character as error, that one can be enabled to guard against them and protect oneself from them. It is not possible to speak in this realm of particular truths or errors, but it is necessary to become clear as to which activities and misapprehensions of the soul can cause a person to succumb to untruth on the path of spiritual research. It can readily be understood that anyone wishing to gain access to the supersensible worlds, in the sense of what has been presented in the previous lectures, first needs a healthy organ of perception, just as healthy senses are needed for outward sensory observation. The second thing one needs in addition to an organ of perception is a proper development and clarity of consciousness, which has the capacity to oversee and evaluate the observations that one makes. Even in ordinary sensory observation of life, it is necessary that we not only have healthy senses, but that our consciousness is also healthy, that is, a consciousness that is not befogged or confused, nor deadened or paralyzed in some way. Both these qualities of soul life become even more significant at a higher level in the realm of spiritual research. In order to make myself clear, I shall compare this with a situation from ordinary sense observation. Suppose someone has, for example, an abnormally developed eye, E-Y-E. He will then not be capable of observing the available phenomena in a right and uninhibited way with this abnormally developed eye. Hundreds of other examples could be cited, but we can confine ourselves to this one. A very significant natural scientist of the present time, who is not in the least inclined to submit willingly to any delusion, had a certain eye condition, and in his biographical sketch he described how this condition caused him to see things incorrectly, especially when it was growing dark and hence to arrive at false judgments. He describes, for example, that he would often go for a walk when it was dark and because of his eye condition, might see a form of some kind that he considered to be real, but which was called forth by the abnormality in his eyes. He then relates that he was once going round a corner in a city that was unfamiliar to him, and because he considered the city to be unsafe, his eyes misled him into seeing someone approaching him round the corner who wanted to assault him, and he even pulled out a weapon in order to defend himself. He was, therefore, despite his full knowledge of his eye impairment, unable to judge the situation rightly and realize that what his eye registered was not there at all. Thus, misapprehensions can arise through all our sense organs. This is merely cited as a comparison. It has been mentioned in previous lectures that a person can, 
through certain inner developments of his soul, become a real spirit researcher, that he can cultivate spiritual organs through which he can gain insight into the supersensible world. These spiritual organs must also be developed in the right way, if it is to be possible, in accordance with the analogy of sensory perception, to see not caricatures and untruths, but to behold the true reality of the higher spiritual worlds. Now the development of higher spiritual organs, which, as we have seen, can be brought about by rightly employed meditation, concentration, and contemplation, depends upon making a beginning with ordinary life. Every person who wants to enhance his development toward the spiritual worlds must, as is right and natural, take his starting point from ordinary soul development, from what is right and normal for daily life, and also for ordinary science. Only from this starting point, by assimilating into the soul those mental processes that we have characterized as meditation and other similar exercises, can the soul move toward observation of the spiritual worlds. It is important that at the starting point, that is, before the beginning of spiritual schooling, the prospective spirit researcher must have a sound power of judgment, a capacity to discern what is actually going on. Every starting point that does not derive from a power of judgment that gives itself up wholly to the phenomena is an aberration for it brings about unhealthy organs of spiritual observation, which can be compared with abnormally developed sense organs. Here we are again at the point that has arisen in previous lectures and which shows how important and significant what one can designate as the soul life of the spirit researcher is before he embarks upon his spiritual scientific schooling, his development as a spirit researcher. An unsound power of judgment, an inadequate capacity to observe things as they are, leads a person to distort the facts and beings of the spiritual world, or, as we shall see today, to view them in a variety of false ways. This is, as it were, the first important principle for all development toward spiritual research. Spiritual scientific schooling makes it necessary that the starting point must be made from a sound power of judgment, from an interest in phenomena that always seeks to base itself on the true relationships of existence before the path to the supersensible worlds is embarked upon. Everything that readily surrenders itself to deceptions, that is, content to judge in an arbitrary way and represents a certain unsound logic, also leads to the development of unhealthy spiritual organs. The other starting point that is of significant importance is the moral mood of the soul. Moral integrity, moral power is as important as sound logic, as sound intellectual reasoning. For if unsound logic and reasoning power leads to inadequately developed spiritual organs, so does the weak-hearted or immoral mood that a person seeking the spiritual worlds before the beginning of spiritual schooling lead to what we would, could call a certain nebulousness or stupor, so that when he confronts the higher worlds he experiences a kind of paralysis and even a loss of consciousness. It should be noted, however, that the loss of consciousness or stupor at the stage of soul development referred to here, cannot by any means be compared with the loss of consciousness or paralysis of ordinary everyday consciousness. In the latter situation, there is a certain loss of consciousness in relation to the areas of daily life. In the spiritual domain, the deadening or clouding of consciousness equates to its saturation with all that can derive from the ordinary world of the senses or from the ordinary experience of the day. The spirit researcher who is in error cannot be beset with a clouding or loss of consciousness as in ordinary consciousness, but he can be unconscious in relation to the spiritual worlds as a result of his spiritual field of consciousness being filled with 
what has justification only through the nature of its manifestation in ordinary sensory and intellectual consciousness. By taking this into the spiritual worlds, the spirit researcher dulls his higher consciousness. One can also portray the matter in the following way. A dimming of consciousness, the impairing of the ordinary nature of the soul in everyday life, is like an infiltration of sleep or dream into clear waking consciousness. However, the deadening or clouding of higher supersensible consciousness is like an infiltration of ordinary daily consciousness, the consciousness that we carry around with us in the ordinary world, into that consciousness which should purely and clearly survey and evaluate the facts of the higher supersensible worlds. Any kind of immoral or morally enfeebled mood, any kind of moral untruthfulness leads to such a clouding of supersensible consciousness. Hence, at the outset of a spiritual scientific schooling, a corresponding moral state of being is of essential significance. And if you peruse my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? or, readers aside, How It Is Attained, and of readers aside, you will find indications of particular forms of soul development through which this appropriate moral condition can be cultivated. Especially harmful in this respect is any kind of vanity, ambition, an ordinary sense of self, or a certain sympathy for experiences of this nature that can afflict a person in ordinary life. Inner composure, impartiality, a loving involvement in things and worlds, an attentive interest in everything that life can offer, and qualities of a similar nature, but quite especially a certain moral courage, a willingness to stand up for what one recognizes as true, these are appropriate starting points for a spiritual scientific schooling. It is clear from the previous lectures that all spiritual schooling is dependent upon spiritual forces that are present in the soul but slumber within it in ordinary life, being awakened and developed. For spiritual organs and supersensible consciousness can only be nurtured through the forces residing in the depths of the soul, which in ordinary life are not developed at all, or only weakly so, truly emerging into the light of consciousness. Moreover, the following can also be seen from what has been said hitherto. Two things manifest themselves when through appropriate meditation, through concentrating one's whole life of soul upon particular mental pictures, freely summoned into consciousness, one endeavors to draw forth these forces residing in the depths of the soul. Firstly, a quality that is always present in the soul but can be kept in abeyance relatively easily in ordinary life is together with other qualities that slumber in the depths of the soul, strengthened and intensified. For spiritual development cannot take place unless, in a certain sense, one makes one's whole soul life inwardly more active, more infused with energy. That quality, which together with whatever else is seeking to strengthen, is thus intensified in what one may call the sense of self, one's self-love. Indeed, it could be said that one only really comes to know this quality of self-love when one undergoes a spiritual scientific schooling. Only then does one realize how deeply this self-love that resides within the human soul is slumbering there. Anyone who intensifies his soul forces through the exercises described in the preceding lectures notices at a certain time of his development that another world enters his life of soul. However, as part of his spiritual development, he must at the same time be able to notice and have the knowledge to recognize that the first form of the new supersensible world that appears is nothing other than a shadow image, a projection of his own inner soul life. The soul forces that appear to him as a result of what he has developed in his soul life initially take the form of a mirror picture. This is also why a materialistic thinker can very easily mistake what appears in the soul life of a spirit researcher for illusions, hallucinations, 
visions and the like that can manifest themselves in an unhealthy soul life. That an objection deriving from this confusion rests purely upon an ignorance of the facts has frequently been explained. It must again and again be pointed out that an unhealthy soul life which beholds its own essence as in a mirror picture considers this mirror picture to be a real world and is not in a position to eliminate this perception through inner choice. Whereas, by comparison, it must be an integral part of a true spiritual schooling that the spirit researcher recognizes the first phenomena which appear as reflections of his own being, and that he not only recognizes them as such, but he is able also to eliminate and extinguish them from his field of consciousness. Just as the spirit researcher, on the one hand, comes through his exercises to be able to strengthen his soul forces so that they conjure up a new world before him, so, on the other hand, must he be capable of extinguishing this entire world in its initial form. He must not only recognize it as a reflection of his own being, but also be able to extinguish it again. If he is unable to do this, he is in a situation comparable with one that, were it to occur in sensory observation, would be completely unsustainable, completely impossible for a real development of the human soul. Let us suppose that in the context of ordinary sense observation, a person were to look at an object and were to be so attracted by it that he could not avert his gaze from it. He would therefore no longer be able to look around freely, but would be tied to the object. This would be an unbearable situation with respect to the outer world. In the case of spiritual development, it would signify exactly the same in relation to the supersensible world if a person were to be incapable of redirecting his spiritual organ of perception by extinguishing the image that presents itself to it. For only if he can pass the test of extinguishing this image, so that once it accordingly returns, after he has overcome himself, he can come to know his true reality, does he face reality and not his own fantasy. Thus the spirit researcher must be able not only to evoke and foster his own spiritual phenomena, but must also be capable of extinguishing them again. But what does this mean? It means nothing less than the need for an immensely strong force that is necessary to overcome the sense of self, self-love. For why is it that an abnormal soul life which arrives at hallucinations, visions and delusionary notions sees these fabrications as realities and not as the emanations of its own being? This is because a person feels so connected with what he himself brings forth that he would believe himself to be as though destroyed if he were unable to regard this product of his own being as a reality. And if someone leaves the ordinary world and his soul life is abnormal, self-love is intensified to the point of being like a force of nature. Within ordinary soul life, we can very easily distinguish between fantasy and reality, for in normal life we have a certain power over our ideas. Everyone is familiar with this power that the soul has over the mental images that it engenders, in that it has the capacity to get rid of notions if their erroneous nature is recognized. We are in a different situation in relation to the outer world, when we confront the forces of nature, when lightning flashes, when thunder rumbles, we have to allow these phenomena to take their course. We cannot forbid the lightning from flashing or the thunder from rumbling. But when we depart from ordinary soul life, the sense of self appears within us with the same inner force. And just as one cannot forbid lightning from flashing, one cannot prevent the self-love that has developed into a force of nature if it is only a reflection of one's own being 
that which presents itself to the soul as an image of its own being in such a way as to be perceived as a real outer world. From this one can also see that the self-education of the spirit researcher must be directed above all else toward overcoming by degrees this self-love, this sense of self. And only when this is attempted at every stage of spiritual development through strict self-observation does one finally come to be able to erase from consciousness a spiritual world that has appeared to us in the manner described that is, to be in the position to let what one has brought about with all manner of exertions to sink into oblivion, as is described more fully in title knowledge of the higher worlds, something must be developed here with respect to spiritual schooling, which in ordinary life the untrained human will cannot encompass. If someone undertakes to do something in ordinary life, he wants to do it. If he neglects to do something, he does not want to do it. In ordinary life, people are accustomed to applying their will impulses. But, in order that the spiritual world that appears in the manner described can be extinguished, the will must not only have the faculty in question, but it must, once the spiritual world appears, be able slowly and gradually to diminish itself to the point of utter willlessness, even to the extent of extinguishing itself altogether. Such a cultivation of the will is achieved only if the exercises described in the book referred to are systematically carried out by the soul. This is, on the one hand, what is intensified in our soul, if we want to energize the forces slumbering within it. Self-love, the sense of self, and this intensification constantly leads us under certain circumstances to regard what we actually are ourselves, what lies only within us as an outward reality, something else that manifests itself when the soul undertakes the corresponding exercises for spiritual schooling is that at a certain stage of this development, the person concerned must actually abandon with his consciousness everything that has hitherto in outer everyday life and in ordinary science given him the substance and certainty of truth that gives him the possibility of recognizing something as reality. It has already been indicated in the previous lectures that all supports that we have for our judgments in ordinary life, that all basic reference points that the sense world gives us and that teach us how we have to think about reality must be abandoned. For through spiritual schooling we are wanting to enter a higher world. When the spirit researcher sees at an appropriate stage of his development that in the world that he is wanting to enter he can no longer have any support through outer sense perception, that he can also no longer have the support of the intellectual judgment that he has acquired, which has otherwise guided him rightly through life, then comes the serious and significant moment in the life of the spirit researcher when he feels as if the ground has been taken from under his feet, as if all certainty has been lost, and as if with every further step he must surely fall into an abyss that he is approaching. That this experience is not associated with all manner of dangers is something that a true spiritual schooling that belongs expressly to the present time is concerned to ensure. The endeavor to explain this further has been made in the book title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. If one undertakes the exercises given there, one arrives step by step at a point where one experiences what has just been described, where one feels as though one is hovering over an abyss. But one has already become so calm in one's soul that one views the situation with a newly acquired special faculty of judgment, so that what would otherwise inevitably manifests itself in the human soul by way of terror and horror, though not fear of the ordinary everyday kind, 
does not arise. One comes to know the foundations of fear, terror, and horror. But one has progressed to a state of mind where one can endure it without fear. Here we are again at a point where it is necessary for the soul to acknowledge the truth and avoid falling into error, because the support that one has in ordinary life disappears and the soul feels itself as though positioned over an abyss. This must happen in order that out of the emptiness the full spirituality of the world can approach the soul. What in ordinary life is called anxiety and fearfulness is, through such a schooling, intensified and expanded in the same way that the sense of self and self-love are also intensified and expanded. They grow somewhat as a force of nature. And here something must be said which might perhaps sound paradoxical. If we have not achieved a certain level of courage and are in a certain respect cowards, we may in ordinary life be frightened by an event of one kind or other, but if we are not cowards, we can endure it. In the region of soul life that has been described, we are approached by fear, horror, and terror, but we must manage not to be frightened by fear, not to be horrified by terror, and not to be worried by anxiety. This is the paradox. But it wholly accords with a real soul experience that appears in this realm. Everything that a person experiences on entering the spiritual world is actually associated with what is referred to as an experience with the guardian of the threshold. I have tried to explain something in concrete terms about this experience in my mystery play titled The Guardian of the Threshold. Here I shall just mention that at a certain stage of spiritual development, a person comes to know his own inner being as it can love itself with the force of an event of nature, as it can be frightened and fearful upon entering the spiritual world. This experience of one's own self, of the intensified self of that inner being that does not otherwise come before the soul, is the shattering event that is called the meeting with the guardian of the threshold. And it is only by having this meeting that one forges the faculty to distinguish truth from error in the spiritual world. It is easy to understand why this experience is called a meeting with a guardian of the threshold. It is, after all, clear that the spiritual world into which a person enters is always around us, and that the only reason why he does not become aware of it in ordinary life is that he does not have the corresponding organs of perception for it. The spiritual world always surrounds us, and it is also always behind what the senses perceive. But before a person can enter it, he must strengthen his ego. However, with the strengthening of the ego, the qualities referred to earlier appear. He must, therefore, above all else, come to know himself, so that when he is able to confront a spiritual outer world, in the way that he can confront an objective being, he has the capacity to distinguish himself from what is truth. If he does not learn to make this distinction, he will constantly confuse what is only in him and what are only his subjective experiences with the spiritual world picture, and he will never arrive at a real understanding of spiritual reality. The extent to which fear plays a certain role on entering the spiritual worlds can be seen especially in people who deny the existence of such a world. Among these people there are many who also have other reasons for denying its existence, but a large portion of them, who are theoretical materialists or materialistically inclined monists, do so for a specific reason that is clearly visible to someone who understands the soul. In this connection, we must now emphasize that the soul life of man is of a twofold nature. There is not only that aspect of which a person is ordinarily aware, but processes are enacted in the depths of soul existence that cast their shadows or their lights upon ordinary consciousness.
but ordinary consciousness does not extend to this level. We can have hatred and love, joy and fear, and excitement in these hidden depths of the soul without these emotions manifesting themselves in the conscious life of the soul. Hence, it is entirely correct to say that a particular manifestation of hatred, consciously expressed by one person toward another, can have its origin in a love residing in the depths of the soul. A person may have a sympathy, a deep sympathy for another person in the depths of his soul. But, for reasons of which he may be entirely ignorant, he becomes totally oblivious of this love, this sympathy, and appears instead to be full of hatred and antipathy. This is something that is rooted in the depths of our soul, so that things appear quite differently in this region from in that of our everyday consciousness. Thus there can be states of fear and anxiety in the depths of the soul, without the person concerned having any awareness of this in his ordinary waking consciousness. He may have that fear, that anxiety in the face of the spiritual world in the depths of his soul, because he must cross the abyss that has been described before he enters it, but not notice any of this in his waking consciousness. Instead, all those who have not as yet entered the spiritual world, but have acquired an understanding of doing so, have this terror, this fear of the spiritual world to a certain extent. Regardless of what one may think about this fear and anxiety that reside in the depths of the soul, they are indeed present, though more strongly in the case of some people than with others. And because the soul could be harmed by this, human individuals are protected by the wisdom inherent within them from being readily able to perceive the spiritual world and the experience of encountering the guardian of the threshold is one that they can have only when they are ready for it. One therefore speaks of the experience with the guardian of the threshold. In the case of materialistically or monistically inclined people, we can observe that they know nothing of this experience, but that this fear of the spiritual world is present in the depths of their souls. There lives in them a certain antipathy toward the threshold that one has to cross. Materialists or monists endeavor to dispel this fear, this anxiety residing in their souls, by thinking out their theories and denying the spiritual world. And this denial is nothing other than an attempt to stifle their fear. This is the real explanation for materialism. However unsympathetic it may sound, For someone who has an understanding of the soul, it is apparent that in a gathering of materialistic monists, of those who deny the soul or spirit, their souls are dominated by a fear of the spiritual world. One could say mockingly that fear-mongering is the basis of materialism, but even if one proclaims this mockingly, it is nevertheless true. In materialistic writings and world conceptions, the spirit researcher always discerns between the lines a fear and anxiety in the face of the spiritual world. However, the materialism that is present in ordinary life when people are materialists or materialistically inclined monists can also be present when, through specific means, they arrive at a certain degree of spiritual perception for it is possible to pursue certain exercises in one's soul. One can also, on the basis of a more or less unhealthy soul life, arrive at some degree of spiritual understanding, but that does not mean that there will be any real insight into the nature of the spiritual world. In a certain sense, one can also raise what has just been characterized, namely, what is embodied by materialistically inclined people in the ordinary world into the spiritual world, something that is like the fear of which one knows nothing. If one does not perceive the connection, one may carry up into the spiritual world something that is widely disseminated in ordinary life, comfortableness in thinking, comfortableness in feeling. 
Fear is related to a love of ease, to clinging to habits. Why are people fearful of change? Because they are comfortable with things as they are. The comfortableness is related to fear. Just as we were previously describing what can sometimes be the ground for hatred, one can also say of fear that casualness and love of ease are related to it. But one can carry this attitude of comfortableness up into the spiritual world. No one should now object that the people who are being referred to show no evidence of fear or love of ease, for it is thoroughly characteristic that the ordinary mood of soul knows nothing of the way that these things are rooted in the subconscious. If a person brings fear into the spiritual world, once he has developed to the point of acknowledging the spiritual worlds, an aberration arises in a spiritual realm which it is of the greatest importance to be aware of, the inclination toward phenomenalism. People who are drawn to this inclination become not spirit researchers, but, to put it bluntly, beholders of specters. They are possessed by an inclination toward phenomenalism. This means that they want to perceive the spiritual worlds in the way that the sense world can be beheld. They do not want to perceive spiritual phenomena or spiritual beings, but something similar to a being that the sensory eye can behold. In short, they want to behold not spirits but specters. The aberrations of spiritism, which is not to say that all spiritism is unjustified, rest unequivocally upon this inclination toward phenomenalism. Just as the ordinary, everyday materialist wants to see everywhere only matter and not the spirit behind matter, so it is a person who brings to the spiritual worlds the same state of soul that is actually present in materialism, see everywhere ghostly, condensed spirits. This is one extreme form of dangerous error that can arise. It has to be said that this tendency to bring the ordinary fields of consciousness into the supersensible field of consciousness is also very widely present in those who have full recognition of a spiritual world and would even want that proofs be provided for such a world. But the error here lies in that they want to permit only such proofs as are valid in the realm of phenomenalism that everything should be condensed to a spectral quality. Here something arises that at the beginning of our considerations today was referred to as a stupor, a loss of consciousness with respect to the spiritual world. Whereas a loss of consciousness in ordinary life is an infiltration of a sleep or dreamlike state, with respect to the spiritual world attributing validity only to that which appears in the same way as the phenomena of the ordinary world, signifies a loss of consciousness in relation to it. For it is being demanded that proofs be provided that are to be taken wholly in accordance with the nature and qualities of the ordinary world. Just as one brings sleep into the ordinary world if one loses consciousness, so does one suffer a loss of consciousness toward the beings and processes of the spiritual world if one takes into the supersensible world that which is only bound up with the world of the senses. Anyone who is a real spirit researcher also knows these regions of the spiritual world that are condensed to a spectral quality. But he knows that everything that becomes condensed in this way is merely the dying withering aspect of the spiritual world. Thus, if, for example, something is, with the help of a medium, brought to light that represents the thoughts of a dead person, we are being presented only with what has been left behind by the one who has died. We are not being confronted by what passes through the portal of death, journeys to the spiritual world and reappears in a new earthly life. And we are then not dealing with what is present in the individuality of the deceased person, but with what is in the sheath that has been cast off, like the wooden part of a tree or the shell of a shell animal or the skin of a snake. 
Such sheaths, such things as can no longer be used, are continually being cast off by the beings of the spiritual world, and through the intervention of a medium they can be made visible and perceptible, albeit as something unreal. The spirit researcher knows that he is not dealing with unrealities. However, he does not abandon himself to the error that these phenomena represent something fruitful, something budding and sprouting, but something that is dying and withering. Moreover, it must be emphasized that whereas in the realm of the sense world one has to do with something that must be left well alone if an error is involved, that must be eliminated as soon as one discerned an error, in the spiritual world one cannot deal with an error in the same way. For there an error corresponds to what is dying and withering, and the error consists in considering this dying and withering element in the spiritual world to be fruitful or significant. Thus even in the lives of ordinary people an error is something that one rejects. In the spiritual world, error arises through the dead and dying being regarded as something sprouting and fruitful, in that one considers what has been cast off by the dead as destined for immortality. We can see how deeply even the best minds of our time are obsessed by phenomenalism and want only such proofs as have been characterized to be valid especially in one individual who has written so many fine things about the world, and who has now written a book about these various phenomena of spiritual research. I am referring to Maurice Metterlink and his book titled On Death. We read there that he is fully inclined to acknowledge the existence of a spiritual world, but he will only accept as proof what appears in phenomenalism. He does not notice that he tries to find in phenomenalism what can never be permitted in it. Then he criticizes the, in quotes, phenomena very acutely and succinctly. But he notices that all this is actually of no particular significance and that the human soul after death does not exhibit vitality on a deep level, that it behaves awkwardly as though groping in the dark. Moreover, since he wants to acknowledge only proofs of this sort, he does not arrive at a recognition of spiritual research, but remains stuck. So we see how the possibility of error opens up to someone who would dearly like to acknowledge the spiritual world, but who is unable to do so because he demands not spiritual research, but spectral research, and does not want to direct his attention to what reality can give. Especially his most recent book is extraordinarily interesting from this point of view. Thus, in the inclination toward phenomenalism, we have the one extreme of the possibilities for error in spiritual research. The other extreme of these possibilities is ecstasy. And between phenomenalism and ecstasy, if one knows both, lies the truth, or at least it can be reached if one knows both but the path to error lies both from the side of phenomenalism and from that of ecstasy. We have seen what state of soul leads to the wish to acknowledge only phenomenalism. It is fear, terror, which a person does not admit and seeks to suppress. Because he shrinks from forsaking everything of a sense-perceptible nature and making the leap across the abyss, he embraces the sense-perceptible, invokes the spectral element, and thereby arrives only at the dying, at that which destroys itself. This is the one source of error. The other power of the soul, which is intensified through the exercises that have often been described here, is self-love, the sense of self. Self-love has its other pole, that of, quote, standing outside oneself, close quote. The tendency to, quote, find pleasure in oneself, close quote, if you will forgive the somewhat radical expression, but it does express what is meant, is only the one side. The other consists in, quote, losing oneself in the world, close quote, in surrendering oneself, becoming absorbed and feeling at ease in the other. 
and the corresponding intensification of this self-seeking tendency to stand outside oneself is an extreme degree of ecstasy. That is the cause of a state whereby a person can, in a certain sense, say to himself that he has broken free of himself. But he has become free of himself only by feeling at ease in being outside himself. If someone who understands the soul considers the evolution of mysticism in the world, he finds that a large part of mysticism has its foundation in the phenomenon that has just been characterized. However great and powerful, however profound and meaningful mysticism may be in terms of soul experience on the one hand, the possibilities for error of ecstasy are actually rooted in a false cultivation of man's mystical sense. When a person strives to enter increasingly into himself, when he endeavors through what he calls the deepening of his soul life to, quote, find God within himself, close quote, this God that he finds within himself is often nothing other than his own ego turned into God. With many mystics who speak of the, quote, God within, close quote, we find nothing other than their own ego branded with God's name. Mystical immersion in God is sometimes nothing other than immersion in one's own beloved ego, especially in parts of one's ego into which one does not penetrate with full consciousness, so that one surrenders oneself, loses oneself, comes out of oneself, and yet remains only within oneself. Much that manifests itself to us as mysticism shows how in the case of false mystics, a love of God is often really disguised self-love. The true spirit researcher, who must on the one hand guard against bringing the outer world of the senses into the higher worlds, must also on the other hand protect himself from the other extreme of false mysticism, of standing outside oneself. He should never confuse love for the spiritual nature of the world with self-love. In the moment when he does so, the following situation arises. As a true spirit researcher who has pursued the right path of development can confirm. Just as someone who is driven by phenomenalism perceives only the residual or dying element of the spiritual world, a person who devotes himself only to the other extreme sees not spiritual actualities and beings but only particular parts of them. What he does in the spiritual world is not in accordance with someone who observes the flowers in the meadow, but rather with someone who takes what is growing in the field, chops it up, cooks and eats it. The comparison is indeed strange, but entirely appropriate. Through ecstasy, spiritual phenomena are not grasped in their totality or wholeness, but only in a way that pleases and benefits one's own soul so that it can consume them spiritually. It is actually a consuming of spiritual substance that is cultivated within human beings by ecstasy. And just as little as one comes to know the inner nature of the things of the sense world by eating them, one cannot understand the forces and beings of the spiritual world by abandoning oneself to ecstasy, solely to make one's own self glow with what gives one pleasure. In such a situation, one merely arrives at a certain knowledge of one's own self in relation to the spiritual world. One lives only in a heightened sense of self. And because one only takes from the spiritual world what one can spiritually consume, one forfeits what one is unable to deal with in this way, that which lies outside, which can be enjoyed through ecstasy. But this is the greater part of the spiritual world. As a result, the mystic who inclines toward ecstasy becomes increasingly impoverished. And we find that mystics who ascend to the spiritual world through ecstasy tend to indulge themselves in constantly repetitive feelings and sensations. Many presentations made by such mystics do not sound like objective descriptions of what is going on in the spiritual world, 
but more like the indulgence of the one who is given the presentation in what he is describing. Many mystics are actually none other than spiritual gourmets, and the rest of the spiritual world, which is not to their taste, does not even exist for them. We see again how concepts change when we ascend from the ordinary world into the higher worlds. If in the ordinary world we concern ourselves only with our own concepts, we become increasingly impoverished, as does our logic. Ultimately we find that we are no longer able to cope, and anyone who knows the facts is able to correct us. In the ordinary world we compensate for this impoverishment by expanding the range of our concepts. In the spiritual domain, that which corresponds to ecstasy leads to something else. By apprehending realities and not things that are unreal, but selecting only particular parts having picked out elements that suit us, we acquire a view of the spiritual world that is suited only to ourselves. We bear ourselves into the spiritual world, just as, on the other hand, in phenomenalism, we bring the sense world into the spiritual world. In the case of someone who arrives at a false picture of the world through ecstasy, it can always be shown that his starting point was an unsound power of judgment and incomplete knowledge of the facts. Thus we see that the spirit researcher must avoid the two extremes that cause him to encounter all possible sources of error on his path, phenomenalism on the one hand and ecstasy on the other. And there is no better way of avoiding the sources of error than if the spirit researcher cultivates one particular mood of soul, which when he wants to transport himself to the spiritual world will enable him also to be in this spiritual world, to be able calmly to engage in observation there. However, because one cannot always be in the spiritual world as long as one is in a physical body, but must also live with the physical world, this mood of soul that the spirit researcher must cultivate enables him to strive to the best of his ability in the physical world to understand the realities of life with sound common sense, without emotional wallowing or untruthfulness. The spirit researcher needs a healthy sense for facts, a genuine feeling for truthfulness, to a far higher degree than is ordinarily the case. All rapturous enthusiasm, all lack of precision, which make it so easy to slip away from what is really there, are harmful to the spirit researcher. As one can already see in ordinary life, it immediately becomes transparently clear in the realm of spiritual schooling that anyone who allows himself to venture only a little in the direction of imprecision will notice that only a tiny step separates imprecision from falsehood and untruthfulness. The spirit researcher must therefore endeavor to feel himself obliged to hold firmly and uncompromisingly to the unconditional truth that exists in ordinary life, for any compromise in this respect leads in the spiritual world from one error to another. In those circles that want to have something to do with spiritual research, there should be a strong justification for thinking that an outward sign of the true spirit researcher must be his truthfulness, and that in the moment when the spirit researcher shows that he feels no obligation to test what he says but makes pronouncements about the physical world that he cannot verify, he also becomes flawed as a spirit researcher and can no longer merit complete trust. This is connected with the conditions of spiritual research itself. When the realms of spirit research and spiritual science are spoken of today, it must constantly be emphasized that there is no justification for this kind of judgment that claims that only the spirit researcher can gain insight into the spiritual world and that someone who has not yet become a spirit researcher cannot know, understand, and make sense of it. 
You can see from the descriptions in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? and also from title and outline of occult science, that in our present age every person who makes the necessary effort can, to a certain degree, become a spirit researcher, whatever his life's situation may be. But it is also possible for someone to understand descriptions of the spiritual worlds without being a spirit researcher. It is necessary to be a spirit researcher not in order to understand communications from the spiritual worlds, but so as to discover them, to investigate what is present in the worlds of spirit. Just as one must be a painter in order to paint a picture, but does not need to be a painter in order to understand the picture, sound common sense is sufficient for understanding communications from the spiritual worlds. Research of the spiritual worlds entails that a person is equipped with higher organs of observation. But when what is researched is formulated in concepts of the ordinary world, as is often attempted here, plain common sense can, if it is sufficiently unprejudiced and does not create obstructions for itself, grasp what is brought to light through spiritual research. One could say that what is sought through spiritual research is similar to what grows beneath the earth's surface and is found only if one excavates it like a miner. What one finds there can arise in the way that it is present only if it flourishes within the layers of the earth that are covered by what lies above them. What is down in the depths could not come into being and flourish on the surface of the earth. But if we make an opening and let the sunlight in, The sun can illumine what is underneath, and everything can appear in its light. It is similar with what can be discovered through spiritual scientific research. It can be revealed only if the soul has transformed itself into an organ of perception for the spiritual world. But if it has been formulated in the concepts and ideas of ordinary life, the human intellect can, provided that it is sufficiently imbued with sound common sense, illumine and understand everything as a kind of spiritual sunlight. Thus the whole of spiritual science is available to be grasped by healthy human reason. Just as the art of painting exists not only for those who are themselves painters, so are communications about the spiritual world, not merely for the spirit researcher. Even though pictures can arise only through painters and the spiritual worlds can be explored only by spirit researchers. Anyone who believes that what derives from the communications of the spirit researcher cannot be understood by means of the ordinary intellect does not have a correct view of the nature and essence of the human capacity for thinking. In man's capacity for thinking there are faculties that have a direct connection with the nature of the higher worlds. And it is only because man is accustomed to approach only sense-perceptible phenomena with his concepts that he believes that the ordinary faculty of judgment will elude him if supersensible phenomena are presented to him. However, if one develops one's thinking potential, one can cultivate it in such a way that it is capable of comprehending what is made manifest through spiritual research. The only reservation is that one should not form a prior conception of how one may comprehend something of this kind. This arises from the exercise itself. If one forms a definite notion of how one should comprehend these things, one opens oneself up to a problematic error with respect to spiritual research. This is the second aspect that comes across particularly blatantly in Maurice Metterling's new book. For it is especially striking that an individual who wants to direct his attention toward the spiritual world, who has made some sensitive observations about various things, and has also himself tried to portray the mysteries of the spiritual world dramatically, should prove so inadequate when he should be approaching true spiritual science. He asks to understand things in a particular way, not a way that arises out of actual phenomena, but one that he dreams up for himself, 
which he believes will prove authoritative. Thus, the strangest thing is that Metterlink considers what theosophy or spiritual science has to say to be only a sort of belief when it speaks today about repeated earthly lives, even though it speaks with a certain outward justification and not with a merely inward conviction, which would be similar to a certain primordial belief of humanity. He calls it a belief because he cannot see that there is no question here of belief, but rather of knowledge. Thus he finds that the evolutionary course of an individual human being, which goes from one life to another, cannot be proved, because he has a particular notion of what constitutes a proof. Certain other people resemble Metterlink in this respect. Until recently there was a kind of belief, a certain geometrical mathematical belief, which was summarized in the words the, quote, squaring of the circle, close quote. That is, people employed a certain analytically, mathematical, constructive thinking in their search for that square which equaled the circle in area or circumference. Now, no one will doubt that there can be a square that is exactly as large as a circle. In reality, this can perfectly well exist, but it is impossible to show with mathematical constructions or with analytical computations exactly what the diameter of a circle would have to be to equal a particular square. That is to say, mathematical thinking does not suffice to prove something that can indeed exist physically. There have been countless people who have worked on the squaring of the circle until recent mathematicians have provided the proof that it is impossible to solve the problem in this way. Today anyone still trying to solve the problem of the squaring of the circle is considered to be ignorant of mathematics in this realm. Just as such people have related to the squaring of the circle, so does Metterlink relate to what he seeks to prove. One can understand the spiritual world, one can comprehend that what is brought to light through spiritual research is real. But if out of a preconception one demands a particular kind of proof, one cannot prove the existence of this spiritual world any more than one can prove the squaring of the circle by mathematical means. One would therefore have to reply to Metterlink that he is trying to square the circle in the spiritual domain. Or he would have to be shown that the concepts through which he would seek to prove the existence of a spiritual world disappear when human beings pass through the portal of death. How is one to be able to verify the existence of such a world with concepts derived from the world of the senses? But this is what Metterlick is trying to do. And it is extraordinarily interesting that when he allows his healthy thinking for truth to take the upper hand, he cannot avoid acknowledging repeated earthly lives. The way that he writes about a knowledge that he calls a belief is highly interesting, and I should like to read you a translation of what he says, quote, Never was there a belief more beautiful, more just, more pure, more morally fruitful, more comforting, and in a certain sense more probable than this. With its teaching of gradual redemption and purification, it alone gives meaning to all bodily and spiritual inequities, all social injustice, all outrageous injustices of destiny. But the goodness of a belief is no proof of its truth. Although 600 million people devote themselves to this religion, although it is very close to those origins that are enshrouded in darkness, although it is the only one that is not hated and is the least tasteless to all, it should have done what the others have not done, bring us incontrovertible evidence for what it has given us hitherto is only the first shadow of the beginning of a proof. Close quote. Steiner again. This means, in other words, that Metterlink is trying in this realm to square the circle. We see from this example with the greatest clarity how someone who can only think that the salvation of spiritual science lies in the one extreme, in phenomenalism, all his writings show this, is totally incapable of grasping the significance and true nature of spiritual scientific research. Much can be learned from such a phenomenon as Metterlink, 
specifically that the truths that have to be incorporated in the world evolution of humanity are, when they first appear, in the position that Schopenhauer characterized with words that have already been cited here. In all centuries, poor truth has had to apologize for its paradoxical qualities. And to Metterlink, truth even appears unbelievable, and yet it is not the fault of truth. It cannot take on the form of error which so universally holds sway. It therefore looks with a sigh at its protective god, time, which nods to it the promise of victory and glory, but whose vast wings beat so slowly that the individual perishes in the meantime. So it goes with the course of the spiritual evolution of mankind, and it should be both interesting and instructive to us that the best people in the present, those who wish with every fiber of their being to form a connection with a spiritual world, are not capable of grasping the central aspect of true spiritual science. Instead, precisely where it is a question of identifying the path to the two possibilities of error, they stumble because they do not dare to leap over the abyss, because they want to cling to the ordinary world of phenomenalism, or else, even if they are not aware of this, they seek an intensification of the sense of self in ecstasy. It cannot only be a matter of recognizing the character of particular possibilities for error, but of learning what one needs to avoid if one is to recognize and block up the sources of spiritual scientific error. From the way in which today's studies have been undertaken, one conclusion to be drawn is that one must know the sources of error. For there is always the temptation in the soul either to err in the direction of phenomenalism, thus to confront the spiritual world in a spiritually unconscious state of mind, or to err in the direction of ecstasy, that is, wanting to enter the spiritual world with inadequate organs of spirit. The path lies between the two extremes. One must know the possibilities for error. But because they can appear in spiritual life with every step, one must not only know them but overcome them. For the results of spiritual science are not only the results of research, but they are also conquests, victories over errors victories over perceptions that have previously been gained, victories over the sense of self and other things besides. Anyone who enters more deeply into what has today been only briefly outlined will notice that even if the possibilities for error can lurk to a frightening degree whenever we embark on research of spiritual life, we have, nevertheless, to be constantly overcoming errors. He will notice that spiritual research not only accords with an indomitable yearning for what he needs for confidence and certainty in his life, but also that for anyone who really understands it as a movement, its aim must appear thoroughly accessible to sound common sense. To summarize what today's lecture was intended to convey on the level of feeling, I should like to say that in spite of all opposition, in spite of all the things that can stand in a hostile way in the path of spiritual research, anyone who enters with a healthy understanding into the results of spiritual scientific research can feel and experience that the fruits of this research thrust their way through weighty hindrances of the soul, through confusing darknesses of the spirit, to an earnest clarity, to a radiant truth. The end of Lecture 12